Director's Commentary, The Sheridan Monkhouse Collection. Hi, Sheridan Monkhouse here. Welcome to the commentary track for the 4K remaster of my 1998 erotic thriller, Platinum Desire. As ever, the highlights of the commentary will be available as podcast. Although, the adult nature of this podcast could mean that it's unsuitable listening for a bus journey into work. So I'd suggest you wait until you get home, pour a large glass of expensive whiskey, light a fine cigar and cuddle up with that special person in your life. And if you don't have a special person in your life, then cuddle up with me, Sheridan Monkhouse, and let's together enjoy the sensual delights of Platinum Desire. I think that if you've seen any Sheridan Monkhouse pictures, you'll know I like to open with a bang. But that seemed a little on the nose here, So instead, I've gone for a tremendously languid opening. Just titles on a black screen with sexy music playing. Finding the right music is always tricky. No more so than here. Weather With You by Crowded House. Believe by Cher. Sir Mix-A-Lot's outstanding song about Bottoms' Baby Got Back. Nothing quite worked. Eventually, and this was quite lucky, I was at Liam Neeson's place for one of our Monopoly and Prosciutto evenings, And he just went, Cher, I've got the perfect music for your sex film. It's an erotic film, not a sex film, but I didn't correct him. It's always best not to get Liam angry. Anyway, then he put on one of his favourite James Galway CDs. He's a huge fan, as you probably know. Initially, I was bemused, but then this outstanding version of sexual healing started playing. Sexy, plaintive, shrill. It was perfect. People are always surprised by how sexy a bearded man in a jumper with a flute can make sexual healing. I can't claim to know how he does it. It's just the genius of Galway. So, black screen, sexual healing on the flute. The scene slowly fades into existence. First we hear running water. Then a blur becomes a girl. She's naked. She's in the shower. Now I learned a great deal about eroticism from this picture. Not least that having a wash can be profoundly erotic if it's in soft focus and slow motion. It's a slow, sensual opening, with sensual music playing over a sensual scene. I even had a sensual font for the titles. French script, if you're interested. Available with most editions of MS Office, I think. So if you want to make that sales report or projection spreadsheet more erotic, then my tip? Switch to French script. So okay, we're out of the shower and Jacqueline is just walking about her apartment nude. Some people complain that this is gratuitous. An accusation I find baffling. It's an erotic thriller. I mean, by definition, if it's an erotic thriller, how can nudity be gratuitous? So, Jacqueline. What can I say? Obviously, the entire picture rested on having a credible Jacqueline. She absolutely could not be just a typical Hollywood token blonde. I needed someone special, tough, but uninhibited about showing her chest. The problem I faced was that it was the 90s. There weren't many actresses who could pull off tough but uninhibited about showing their chest who hadn't already been in an erotic thriller, usually with Michael Douglas. I had made the decision to make the picture back in Britain, 
The Oliver North musical I'd produced on Broadway had had its difficulties and I needed to have a break from the States. It also occurred to me that there hadn't been a genuine erotic film made in Britain since Ronnie Corbett's No Sex Please We're British. I wanted to change that. It's a British film, I needed a British woman. This would be an erotic thriller set in the stationery and office supplies department of a major shipping insurance company. So I needed a woman who could pull off uninhibited and sexy and manager of a stationery and office supply department of a major shipping insurance company. And that was British. Not an easy ask. I'd considered Helen Mirren and Emma Thompson. Outstanding talents, but at the time... I don't think either of them would have been credible, giving it what for to a post-it note supplier who's not sent enough post-it notes. We tried established actresses, we tried newcomers, we hit the most fashionable clubs in the country, Dukes in Chelmsford, Vice in Basingstoke, but in the end, it was coincidence that got me my girl. I was in London's financial district and I popped into one of the big offices to see if I could use their toilet. You've got to understand, it was the late 90s, it was a different time. Tony Blair had just won an election. There was a real optimism in the air. You felt like you could just pop into an office and use their toilet. But not this time. There was this girl on the front desk. Beautiful, classy, but with a fierce intelligence. Exactly the sort of fierce intelligence that a head of stationery and office supply department would need. Anyway, well, it's funny now. But at the time, she was adamant that I couldn't use the toilet. I was furious. Look! You know that Tony Blair is Prime Minister now? But she wouldn't let me in. Happily, there was a pub just round the corner whose toilets I was able to use, and for a pub lavatory, I have to say that it was a thoroughly pleasant experience. Very comfortable seat. Sorry, this is straying from the erotic. The point is, I had a good 15 minutes there to think about this girl who wouldn't let me use the toilet. And by the time I was washing my hands, I was convinced. Eleanor Gay... A girl I'd met briefly when trying to use a toilet was my Jacqueline. Bang. We have a sharp cut straight to Jacqueline at work, which is deliberately jarring. We've gone from a sensual and languid opening straight into the pressure cooker environment of a busy stationery and office supplies department. And we really see the presence and charisma of Eleanor as she essays our high-powered stationery manager. She just owns the screen here. Interestingly, this was the only picture that Elle made. The experience gave her a lifelong love of stationery and she ended up establishing a very successful stationery supplies company in Crawley. And you know, if ever I'm in Crawley, we meet for lunch and she always makes me the gift of a box of post-it notes, which for my money are the best post-it notes on the market. Seriously, wouldn't buy any others. They're outstanding. So now, it's just a normal day at work for Jacqueline. She's busting the supplier's chops to get a refund on some substandard ring binders, but then in walks Jason and her world turns upside down. Now up until now, Jacqueline has only ever been focused on her high-flying career. Yes, she's sensual enough to walk around her flat with nothing on, but she suppressed that side of her to really make it in stationery and office supplies. She simply doesn't have time for love, passion, sex, or so she thought. But then she meets Jason. Now, the character of Jason I'd always had in my head as a sort of artistic dreamer type. But then Jerry and I met David. David Sampson. He was... God, you know, if it hadn't been for that hot air balloon accident, then... I don't... 
It still upsets me. It really does. It's such a bloody waste. David Sampson was Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt and Christian Slater all rolled into one. He could have owned Hollywood. He really could. He'd only made a handful of films, but you could tell you were dealing with someone who would have been spoken of in the same breath as Robert Redford, Jimmy Stewart. But then he went and got in the basket of that bloody balloon. What the hell was he thinking? It's just so terribly, terribly tragic. Still, I think that, well, if nothing else, Platinum Desire stands as a testament to a wonderful and much-missed young actor. Here's to you, David. So, anyway. Anyway, Jason. And he's not the artsy type I had in mind. He's a top executive. A really big deal in the company. That was Jerry's idea. Jerry co-wrote Platinum Desire with me. In fact, it was the two of us who came up with the name. I came up with Platinum, he thought of Desire. So it was a real collaborative effort. Anyway, I'd gone to see him. Normally, when we worked together, he'd be on set. But having a sweaty and visibly tumescent 22-stone man in board shorts sat cross-legged on the edge of the set was starting to put off some of the female cast members. So I'd gone to see him. He was living under a bridge in Walthamstow while we were in London. He could have had a hotel suite, but he said he wanted to experience the real London. That was Jerry, always the writer. Anyway, we wanted Jason and Jacqueline to meet in Jacqueline's office. It was important that she was in her own domain, but we couldn't figure out how to get Jason, who at this point was a professional juggler who composed symphonies but couldn't catch a break, we couldn't figure out how to get him into Jacqueline's office. I mean, what, he needed paper to compose his symphonies on? He'd just go to Woolworths. It didn't make sense. Then Jerry just came up with it. Share, he said. Jason is an executive. Jason is the executive. Well, it was brilliant. Genius. But that was Jerry. I had so many questions. Was he senior executive or junior? Would he still juggle? Jerry just told me to trust in the character, in the actor, and in his dark lord Beelzebub. Jerry went through periods of Satanism in his life. Only casually, though. I don't believe he ever actually sacrificed anything or anyone. It became very clear very quickly that Jason wasn't just any executive, he was a top executive. That was just the actor's commanding power coming through. Interestingly though, although there is no reference made to it on screen, I always believed the character of Jason still both juggled and composed symphonies in his spare time. I think that's just the depth that David could bring to a role. So the first time we meet Jason, he's angry. Damn angry. There's no staplers on the top floor and they've got some major clients coming in who may very well need to have something stapled. I love this. It's an intense scene where they're just yelling and going crazy at each other. Now they're yelling and going crazy with each other because of the staplers, right? Wrong. You see, superficially it's about staplers, but on a deeper, subliminal level, it's their passion for each other bubbling up. I portray this deeper, subliminal level of what's really going on here with a few subtle close-ups on Jacqueline's mouth, on Jason's moist brow, the redness on Jacqueline's neck, Jason's groin, zipper slightly too low, just subtle flashes to subconsciously implant in the viewer the nature of the passion between the two of these characters. Now, the subliminal becomes the liminal, as we drift from the previous scene with all its, 
well, it's foreplay, I suppose, into the first serious lovemaking scene in the picture. There's a lot going on here, and I want to let you in a little behind the scenes of what's happening. It's a key scene in the film, and it takes its inspiration, I think, very clearly, from the outstanding Don't Look Now, which is a classic Don Sutherland picture. I mean, apart from all that nonsense with the dwarf at the end, obviously. I love Don. Incredibly tall man, but an outstanding talent nonetheless. So what we do here is cut between the scenes of them fighting into the scene just afterwards of the pair of them having sex on a box of desk calendars in the storeroom. It contrasts the passion of the fight over the staplers with the intensity of the lovemaking on the box of desk calendars. So yes, the scene is redolent of the scene in Don't Look Now, except it doesn't have a small child drowning. I'll let you be the judge of whether or not that makes it superior. It's a long, passionate, erotic scene, and it took a long time to film. Both David and Eleanor were tremendously professional about the whole thing, even when Elle got a paper cut on a particularly uncomfortable part. It was the first big nude scene for either of them, and whilst Elle was professional, we'd wrap her in a towel between takes and make her as comfortable as we could. David, though, simply wasn't that bothered. Seemed happier naked, if I'm honest, even though it could get quite chilly. But that was David for you. Incredibly hairy man. So, thus begins this passionate affair having monumentally powerful and intense sex whenever they can at Jason's luxury penthouse apartment in Canary Wharf. This series of intensely sensuous moments culminates in what has become the film's signature sex scene. It's a rather interesting story, how it all came about. Now, food is erotic. I don't think that anyone who's eaten a really good farmhouse sausage could argue with that. So I wanted to marry food and eroticism. However, it was important to me that I didn't just slavishly copy nine and a half weeks, so fruit was out. I needed another erotic food. I considered all sorts. Curry? Pastries? Offal? Nothing seemed quite right. I was actually in the outstanding Chico's Choco Gourmet Chocolate Shop when it hit me. A sensual and erotic foodstuff that could be used to spice up lovemaking? Cheese. I sent one of the girls straight out to get a variety of cheeseboard selections from all the main supermarkets, and surprisingly, the most erotic cheeseboard selection, and we all agreed on this, it was from Asda. I know, you'd have probably assumed M&S or Waitrose, and I'm no cheese expert. Maybe, in purely cheese terms, they were superior. But for sheer eroticism, it was Asda all the way. The scene was meticulously choreographed starting with Jason gently, sensuously stroking Jacqueline's breast with a small piece of red leicester, then lightly rolling a stilton wheel along the small of her back as she arches in pleasure, and culminating in the now notorious sequence of a naked Jacqueline straddling Jason and dripping warm brie onto his chest, in what was the first combination of S&M and dairy goods ever portrayed on screen. David was a trooper in this scene. We offered him a stunt double. I mean, hot food stuff, naked flesh. The last thing we wanted was a cheese-based injury. But David was having none of it. Christ Sheridan, if anyone's having the damn breed dropped on them, then I am. That's what I mean about David. A real professional. Genuinely a brave actor. Interestingly, you can see in this scene some flecks in Jacqueline's hair. Now that was from a cutscene where Jason crunches up water biscuits and drops them gently onto a naked Jacqueline. We were hoping that it would evoke uh, an exotic scene, as if she were standing under a beautiful tropical waterfall in a jungle paradise. But it just looked like a girl with crumbs on her. 
so he abandoned it. Well, as you probably know, the scene went on to become a classic. The popular cheese industry magazine, Cheese Monthly, voted it their all-time greatest cheese-based movie scene. Asda stocked a cheese and sexy underwear gift for that Christmas. There was even a high-class cheese fetish sex club that opened up for a year or so in Hamburg. Well, whilst I'm incredibly grateful that the cheese sex scene is so well thought of, one of the things I'm most proud of about Platinum Desire is that it isn't just sex. There is so much more to it. Now, I could have made a film that was just sex scene after sex scene. One with cheese, then, I don't know, one with sexy trains. Then one with a sexy wall. Then a sexy bin. Then a sexy... I don't know. But the point is, it was supposed to be an erotic thriller. And so, having a profoundly erotic cheese scene wasn't enough. I wanted audiences to be thrilled. Now, by developing so explicitly the passionate affair... The audience has real investment in the characters of Jacqueline and Jason, which gives greater stakes to the thriller aspect of the story. Now that's just a, a little filmmaking technique for you there. So now, just after the sexy cheese scene, we see the first chink in the relationship. Jacqueline is lying on the bed, Bree stiffening on the sheets, and she notices a familiar box at the bottom of Jason's cupboard. It's a box of post-it notes, and they're from her department. Interestingly, the box of post-it notes, like all office stationery used in the film, isn't a prop, but is actually a genuine box of post-it notes. People say I was too meticulous with the stationery, but it was important to me that, stationery-wise, the film was credible. And as no one has ever complained to me that stationery or office supplies seemed unrealistic, then I think it's fair to say that I succeeded. So, we see Jason come out of the shower, naked, David had no qualms about the nudity in the film. To be honest, by this time, it was tough to get him to actually wear clothes. He does some outstanding work here. There's just a flash of panic in his eyes as he sees Jacqueline with a box of post-it notes. She quizzes him about the box, and he manages to placate her and convince her that they're solely for personal use and they make love again. But even though Jacqueline is in the throes of ecstasy, she can't quite take her eyes off the box of post-it notes. Now this is very much the marrying of the erotic and the thrilling that marks Platinum Desire as a classic of the genre. Although Jacqueline tries to convince herself that the box of post-it notes is meaningless, she can't shake the feeling that there's more to it. So we have a marvellous noir-esque sequence where she follows him through the fog-wreathed streets of London. Soundtracked again by James Galway, but rather than sexual healing, this time it's the Galway version of Somebody's Watching Me by Rockwell. It's a terrific version that retains the paranoia of the original, but brings a genuinely haunting quality, which perfectly matches the mood of this scene. I'll never understand why more filmmakers didn't use James Galway's music. This works so well here, building to a climatic frenzy of flute playing as Jason takes the post-it notes into the office of a direct competitor, and ending on a beautifully plaintive note as we rest on Jacqueline's stricken face. I'm tremendously pleased with how the character of Jacqueline has worked out. She's the morally the centre of this film, which brought a real freshness to the genre, and I like to think helped with the ongoing empowerment of ladies, which has been so crucial in recent years. Here is a positive, sexy, capable woman, flawed by her love, perhaps, but that doesn't make her weak, just human. It's a well-rounded portrayal of a woman, and 
Well, it wouldn't surprise me if Angela Merkel, Theresa May or Jessica Rennes-Hill had seen the film in their formative years and possibly been just a little influenced by Jacqueline. You see, many films in the erotic thriller genre... Well, take Basic Instinct, for example. Outstanding picture, obviously, and a bold use of a vagina. But what I never particularly enjoyed was that all the women were unstable murderers or sociopaths who just laid the men low. Femme fatales. What I did with Jason was create an homme fatale, which I don't think has been done before or since, unless you count the Confessions films with Robin Asquith, and I don't. We can see Jacqueline working the problem now. It's good solid face acting here from Eleanor. Even though her lips aren't moving, we can see that she's really thinking. Bang, sharp cut, back in the office. It's late, but as the manager of the stationery and office supplies department, Jacqueline would have no problem convincing security to let her into the building. It's true, I had one of the girls check with several security people in London because any slip-up like that could ruin the picture's credibility and snap the audience out of the moment. Realism is incredibly important to me. And now we come to the most devastating scene in the film. Jacqueline runs a stock check of stationery and office supplies and the terrible realisation hits her. Her stock is low. And that can only mean one thing. Jason has been stealing stationery and office supplies. Betrayed by the man she loves and facing, at the very least, an official written warning, her world collapses. It's an outstanding scene. Elle plays it magnificently. The mist at the windows, a metaphor for the storms in her head, brilliantly echoed by Galway's intense flute playing. She slumps to the ground, clutching the post-it notes that have broken her heart, and we fade. I remember at the time I faced a bit of a backlash for setting an erotic thriller in a stationery and office supplies department. It was bland. It was mundane. Well, I respectfully disagree. This was real people, real lives. In real life, people aren't sexy brain surgeons having tumultuous affairs with mysterious European counts, but they're normal people in stationery and office supply departments. And that's why real people relate so powerfully to platinum desire. Jerry thought we should end the film here, with Jacqueline slumped on the floor, and then go back and extend the cheese sex scene. I respected Jerry. He was a poet, more than the equal of Byron, Shakespeare, Dickens... But he was also on ketamine. Jack Daniels. Cocaine. To be honest, it was hard to find a substance Jerry wasn't on. I once saw him snort some Beecham's cold and flu powder. So in this instant, he wasn't able to convince me that 40 minutes of sex and cheese was commercially viable. Outside of Minnesota, anyway. And I think people would genuinely want to see how Jacqueline and Jason's story ended. So now we have the big confrontation scene. I wanted it romantic and yet at the same time full of the everyday melancholy I mentioned earlier. So we chose a car park in a service station on the M25. South Mims, I think, had an outstanding wimpy. It's not there anymore, so don't go looking for it. Anyway, the couple enjoy a bender in a bun followed by a brown derby and then go for a walk round the tree-lined edge of the car park. It's discreet so they can be alone. Marvellously atmospheric with the autumn leaves, the slate grey skies and notoriously heavy traffic near the Dartford Tunnel. She confronts him, he confesses. David plays this beautifully. He'd been over-ordering stationery and office supplies from Jacqueline's department and selling them to a competitor. He was going to tell her. He was doing it for her, 
so they could get away from their jobs and just be together forever. This, oh, this is a great line. It sums Jason up. He can't see what the fuss is about. It's just office supplies and stationery. But Jason, stationery and office supplies is me. It's who I am. When you cheapen stationery and office supplies, you cheapen me. Brilliant. Jerry wrote that. You can always tell. I'll be honest, it's a strong moment, but I've never been quite happy with how this scene plays out. They've had their big confrontation. Jacqueline, against her better judgment, has agreed to help him just once by supplying a box of red biros to the competitor. Then they have sex up a tree. With hindsight, the sex up a tree feels redundant. Although, in an erotic thriller, can sex up a tree ever be truly redundant? I don't know. This was a trial, though. Acting sex up a tree is gruelling, and although David enjoyed the outdoor nudity, the incident with the acorn was too much even for him. That said, it did allow for a wonderful close-up on Jacqueline's face as she's having sex up a tree, and we see a single tear roll down her cheek as she knows what she has to do. It's an important shot. It foreshadows the denouement. So to the tragic ending. There is a genuine, Shakespearean, operatic sense to the final scenes of Platinum Desire. We begin in silence. We tried some Galway, but silence had a drama that even his outstanding flute playing simply couldn't match. So there's just silence. I'm tight on Jacqueline's face. Then I pull back through the whole stationery and office supplies department, past staplers and notepads shrouded in darkness, and through the open door on the other side of the room, to reveal Jason entering the office. This shot is actually my homage to Alfred Hitchcock, the master. So, if you remember that classic scene in Notorious where the camera flies through the air and ends up close on the key in Ingrid Bergman's hand, my pulling back through the office to end up on Jason is very similar, except with stationery and office supplies. So now we come to the ending. Terribly sad. But can love ever truly end in anything but sadness. Jason is expecting Jacqueline to help him carry the red biros downstairs because he's hurt his back a little. But to his shock and dismay, the police appear. Jacqueline has betrayed him. As the police slap the cuffs on him, the camera closes in on Jacqueline, heartbroken. She mouths, I'm sorry, and we fade. A beautiful and tragic ending. Except for the coda. The coda has proved a little controversial. But after test screenings, we found that people found the ending a little too depressing and they wanted some hope. Now, I don't normally hold with test screenings and neither did Jerry, actually. Just a room full of bovine arsecrackers! That's how he'd refer to them. But on this occasion, I agreed with the audiences. I thought we could introduce some hope to the ending. So we added a scene with Jason in prison. Because stealing stationery and office supplies is a serious business. He has a visitor, and we follow him through the prison. It's actually the same prison used in the Daniel Day-Lewis classic In the Name of the Father, which is a nice touch. As he arrives at the visitor room, there's no one there, but on the window is a post-it note with a heart drawn on it. Beautiful stuff. Brings a tear to my eye, as it has now. So that's Platinum Desire. I hope you've been touched and aroused. And if there's no one with you, I hope you've done it yourself. Oh, the James Galway's soundtrack is still available. As far as I know, it's his only soundtrack to an erotic thriller, so if you need some sexy yet thrilling flute music, I think you'll know where to go. 
Director's Commentary, the Sheridan Monkhouse Collection, an off-target production by Neil Tolfrey. The terrifying theory that there is a dimension with a universe like ours, but instead of humans keeping dogs as pets, dogs are the dominant species and they keep humans as pets.